All right, let's get started. Good morning, everyone. Right at 10 o'clock. At least we did one thing today on time right here. So um, you're in the class Jesus through seeing Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, um, kind of going over the Gospels in Jesus' life in context. Um, I'm Stephen Ramsey. I'm teaching the class with Jeff and Becca Benny. It's been good to get to know the Bennies are good people. I'm uh, not in the family, but they let me. I'm not in the family, <laughs> but they, but they let me join. Um, let's stand and start the class as we have been with the Shema. Uh, Shema is the first word uh, of this verse here, or listen. And so, um, these are the. I think these are the most important words we're going to say today. All of us, period. It's the greatest command, the greatest words we can say. Uh, So let's pray this with passion and then stay standing for the verses to follow. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Let's read these verses together from John 8, John 15. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. All right, you can be seated. Today we're going to be talking about, I think this is a good foundation to lay as we really get into some of the stories and the parables, uh, is about Jesus and the scriptures. There's a story about a Jewish rabbi who uh, goes walking early, early in the morning. It's pitch black, dark outside. And the rabbi, as a good rabbi would do, is walking along and he's reciting the scriptures, reciting the text to himself out loud as he walks along the road. And he, he can't see, he's on the road and he takes a right turn instead of a left because he's so engrossed in the scriptures that he's quoting. And as he's walking along, a voice calls out to him through the night, Who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi stops looks around and says, what? Voice shouts again, who are you? And what are you doing here? And the rabbi realizes, oh, I'm at like a Roman outpost and this is a guard shouting at me. So the rabbi shouts back, how much do you get paid? And then there's silence on the other end of the line. And the guard shouts back, three drachma a week. And the rabbi says, I'll pay you twice that if you come to my house and you ask me those two questions when I leave in the morning and when I come back home. Who are you and what are you doing here? Strip away the titles, the achievements, the failures, worries about the future, regrets about the past. Strip that away. Who are you and what are you doing here? Devoted Jews find the answers to those questions in the text, in the scriptures. 
So we're going to look at today three snapshots of Jesus' life and the importance of the scriptures in it. Jesus growing up, his baptism, and his temptations. It's interesting to me that Jesus lived, let's say, 30 to 33 years old. Started his ministry at 30, left the earth at 33 years old. So 90% of Jesus' life was not doing his ministry. So I think the gospel writers give us more clues than maybe we would think of uh, to what that 90% of his life was like. Him growing up and preparing to do uh, his ministry. Um, so, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, a sage, a wise teacher, a teacher. Rabbis um, are always seeking to teach about God in what they do and in what they say. And it, you have to do five things to become a rabbi. The text being the scripture, you have to learn the text, teach the text, pray the text, live the text, and die the text. And if you do all five of those things, you become the text. I feel like I'm Vanna White here. <laughs> you become the text. So, or in other words, you become the text or the word made flesh. This takes a tremendous amount of effort. This is not something you do a little bit of here and there. I have a friend who, uh, he's an associate minister in a different state. He had just preached a sermon on, on uh, well, he used a lot of scriptures during the sermon. And so someone, an elder at his church, came up to him afterwards uh, and said, of course, now I don't, I, I know my friend, I don't know the elder. And I, so I'm not making any judgment about judgments about him. Uh, but the elder said, that was, that was a great sermon. You know, I, I love that you used a lot of scriptures. I, tried, I try to read a little bit of my Bible every day. Frankly, that's not what Jesus had in mind for his disciples. A little bit of every day. That you don't become the text doing a little bit every day. It takes, it's an all-consuming, all-passionate Effort And it's not about how smart you are, it's about how driven you are to know the text and to live from the text. I also think this class today has a lot to do, um, has a lot to do with our church mission statement, a family growing to become like Jesus. How did Jesus grow up to become what he was? Uh, before we get into it, there's a rabbinic teaching technique called illusions, not magic illusions, illusions, where a rabbi will quote part of a verse, but what he wants you to pick up on is the last half of the verse. Or a rabbi will quote a verse, but the answer that he's giving is the verse preceding or the verse following. It's not the verse itself that he quotes, so you have to know the text to play the game. And the gospel writers do this a lot. To understand the Bible, we've got to know the Bible. The gospel writers are pointing you to other places in the scripture with fragments or short sentences. So we're going to look at a couple places of that uh, today. Uh, starting with Matthew chapter 2. And he came and dwelt in a city called 
Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, so quick Bible bowl time. <laughs> what prophet says this? Where's this verse? I'm going to give you a pass right off the bat. You know why? Because it's not there. It's not even there. What? All right, Luke chapter 2. They returned to Galilee, to Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Okay, so what's the big deal about Nazareth, and what's up with Matthew making up verses? All right, so um, one of, there's a common tree in Israel, uh, the olive tree. This is a fascinating tree and a big deal in the scriptures and a big deal for Israel's identity. I got to go to Israel this summer. This is a picture from the Mount of Olives. There are olive trees all over this place. And uh, this is not in Nazareth, but there's an olive tree. So olive trees, they live for hundreds of years. And they produce fruit for hundreds of years. And olives, of course, have a diverse array of uses. They uh, food and flavoring. Um, they have, it has healing properties. Uh, it's used for anointing. Um, the most common use in ancient times, olive oil was used as fuel for light. Okay, so they produce fruit for hundreds of years. As it starts to hit maximum production and, and starts to go down, when it stops producing fruit, the farmer cuts the tree down at the base, at the stump, when it quits producing fruit. Uh, and then what happens is shoots start to grow up out of the base, out of the stump of the olive tree. And then it grows again and starts to produce fruit again for 100 plus years. And then the process gets repeated over a long period of time. The shoots that grow up from the base or from the stump of the tree, that sh the Hebrew word there is netzer. N-E-T-Z-E-R, netzer. That means shoot or sprout from the base of the tree. So Jesus, the Nazarene, Again, what is Matthew referring to? What is Luke pointing us to in these verses? The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stem or the trunk of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what is Matthew saying? He's a Nazarene. What's he, what's he going to be like? He's going to grow up the way Isaiah said he would. What is Luke referring to? This is, he grew up to be strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is how Jesus is going to shoot up as a child. Now Nazareth, the base of the word Nazareth is Netzer, is shoot. So Jesus is the shoot from Shootville, <laughs> right? This is, is word pictures. Remember, we talked about this early on. Jews think in pictures. What are things like? Jesus is the shoot from Shootville. 
All right, so continuing on, let's keep moving. In, uh, so this early verse in Luke 2 was when he was a baby. This last verse here is when he's 12 years old. So you remember they go to Jerusalem for the annual trip for the Passover. And uh, the parents leave and Jesus stays behind. He's in the temple. These people are amazed at uh, the questions and the answers that he has when he's studying with the scholars in the temple. And so, and we all can kind of identify with Mary and Joseph, either as kids or as parents. You know, you get left behind at church. You know, you show up at Ma's. Hey, where's Brad? I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Well, he's still at church. We've got to turn around and go get him. The difference in this story, which is so funny to me, is they got a day or so down the road. So this would be like you on Monday or Tuesday at lunch being like, you know, I haven't seen Brad since we walked in the church. Whoops, <laughs> that was two days ago. Um, that's such a funny scene to me. It's, um, you got to think the people on the inside, they like knew Mary and Joseph well and knew, you know, what Jesus was about. We're probably like, look, it's one thing if we lose our kid, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Bigger deal for you to use, lose your kid. So they show up, they find Jesus, you know, you worried us to death. And Jesus says, well, I have to be about my father's business, right? Okay, so what does he mean by that? My father's business. Luke, I think, points us to the answer uh, at the end of chapter 2. They came to Nazareth again, and Jesus increased. He shot up in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Um, Proverbs chapter 3 uh, is helpful here. My, the title in my Bible for Proverbs chapter 3 is Guidance for the Young. Verse 1, My son, do not forget my law or my Torah, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Uh, verse 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So this is what Jesus means when he says, I've got to be about my father's business. Luke is saying, the best way that I can tell you what Jesus was like when he was growing up as a teenager is to read Proverbs 3. This is how Jesus shot up. This is how Jesus grew up. Look at Proverbs 3. It's an awesome chapter. It's short. Read it this afternoon. Uh, finding favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man is a reference to an intense, devoted effort to capture wisdom from the scriptures and to live according to them. I think the challenge for us then is how are we shooting up? How are we growing up? Are we growing up with an intense passion to know the scriptures and to live by them. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second because we're about to switch gears to the baptism, but 
wanted to open it up for a minute for any questions, comments, things that catch your eye from, from some of these verses. Throw one comment in. We tend to think of Mary and Joseph being bad parents because they lost Jesus. You have to remember in their culture, once you hit 13, you start your career. School is done. That, that would be the equivalent of our high school graduation. So Jesus is almost there. So it's not, we think of 12-year-olds like 12-year-olds that are children. In their culture, at 13, you either join your father in his job or you apprentice out to someone else and moved into their house. So Jesus is getting ready to start his adult career. And so part of that is you see in that comment from Jesus of I'm about I need to be about my father's business. Mm -hmm. He really is foreshadowing that he's saying I need to be about my career because when he turns 13 that's when he starts. So they call it the age of accountability. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, so Joseph and Mary did not just move, you know, they did in, in that culture, the 12-year-olds had a lot of responsibility. I mean, they were out, if they're shepherds, they were out with the sheep. They were not sitting at home, you know, mom making them wash the dishes. So it was not like they lost Jesus. And, you know, oh, we're bad parents. Yeah. It was like he was almost an adult. He's like what we would treat a 17 or 18-year-old like. You know, he's mostly an adult. You got to give him a little... You got to watch him, but you know, in a year he's going to be on his own. Yeah, they didn't have the scanning system we got here at church, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Tommy. This might be a random question. Do you think we should view Jesus' early childhood almost like Jesus was some kind of prodigy? Um, so like, showed an increased intelligence, um, or like he, he learned the scriptures. Do you think it came from more of a devotion to learning the scriptures? Um, by the age he was 12. I know that that one thing you know I've learned when I went to Israel was they said, uh, I was talking to a Jewish guy, and he believes in Jesus because of where he came from, because he said there's absolutely zero chance that someone who came from his means could have the resources and the knowledge and the intelligence to have, at the age of 12, kind of be able to speak with these people and have this intelligence and scripture and all this stuff. So I've always kind of wondered that myself, is like kind of a prodigy like is there something special in his makeup or do you think you know I don't know I guess it's a uh, question about kind of resources growing up and things like that I think that I, I do think he was probably above average but I also think you don't get to you don't become the text the word made flesh without just a tremendous amount of effort so yeah I'm, I'm sure he was you know he'd score the 30 plus on the ACT but also I like he's I think it's an intense devotion just um, hours and hours and hours learning the text, memorizing the text so that he could live by it. Um, I, I, think, I think it's easy for people to think, well, Jesus, because he was the Son of God, is free to live outside of the text because he is God. And I think Jesus actually saw it the opposite. He was so devoted to the text that he found freedom in the text. Because I, I think about when we, the, the verse we said at the first, um, 
you shall, we can easily quote, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's a great verse, but the verse before it, you are my disciples indeed, if you abide in my word and you shall know the truth. So abiding in the word, I think, is key. There's a, there's a tremendous movie out that everyone ought to see, whether you believe it or not. It's based on uh, apocryphal and even Gnostic uh, writings, but it's Jesus' young life. It's called Young Messiah, and uh, it's just it's tremendous. It will just it'll make you laugh. There's a there's a, a, a time when James and Jesus are walking on a road, and James is going, "It's just hot," and all of a sudden. It starts raining, and James goes, stop it. Quit doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he goes, I really didn't do it. I didn't. But you think about if God were on earth, and if he was hot, what if it just rained? Yeah. It, it just makes you think. And that, I think that's, I think it's, it's, we don't know, but it's certainly food for thought. Mm -hmm. All right, let's jump in uh, to the next um Thing here. So the Hebrew Bible, which we would call the Old Testament, is broken into three parts. Uh, the Torah, the five books of Moses to start the Bible. The Nevi'im, which would be the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, which is the writings or the books of wisdom. When you put it all together, the first letter of the three words, T and K, Tanakh is the word, Tanakh. The Jewish understanding, ancient Jewish understanding, was that the entire Tanakh would testify to who the Messiah was. All of the scriptures would testify to who the Messiah was. So, we come to Jesus' baptism, and the writers say the heavens were ripped open. Okay, is this original? No. What's the verse? What's the verse? What's the verse? Anybody know the verse? Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Says, Oh, that you would rip open the heavens, that you, God, would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Again, the gospel writers are saying, look to the scriptures, because they can say it better then I can. Look at, look at the Hebrew Bible. Look at the Tanakh. God then says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then the Spirit of the Lord descends upon Jesus. So this is a moment where, if you think about the two questions uh, that the rabbi was so excited about in that story, this is where God is answering those questions, I, I think, to Jesus. Who are you and what are you doing here? All right, you are my son. Does anybody know uh, what verse this one points to? Psalm chapter 2. Uh, you, it says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a short chapter, and it's about the Messiah's reign as king over all the nations. So the Ketuvim, the writings and wisdom testify here. You are my son. Whom I love, Genesis 22. Um, let me see if I can find this here. Genesis 22, verse 1. 
Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. So the Torah testifies here. Abraham has to take his only son that he loves to death. And God commands him to sacrifice him. Of course, we know the story that an angel stops him at the last moment from sacrificing uh, his only son that he loves. Matthew uh, refers that Jesus could have called thousands and thousands of angels, yet he did not. There's an interesting aside here that I would throw in on um, Genesis 22. Um, there's, a, there's a Jewish understanding that the first time a word is used in the Bible, it has, that's like the, the original intent. God chose it to be used there for a reason. It gives a better picture of what the word means and is. And the first time the word love is used in the Bible is right here. Um, Strong sidebar there. That could have been the whole class, you know. That's good stuff. All right. And the last phrase, in you I am well pleased. Uh, I think at least we can pick up on the uh, section, um, the Nevi'im. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elected one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, the servant of the Lord. So all of Tanakh, all of the Hebrew Bible testifies to who the Messiah was. And how does God tell us who Jesus is and what he's supposed to be doing? He is both king over all the nations, his only son, whom he loves and will be sacrificed and he is a servant. It's a, it's a great statement on its own, right? That a father saying to his, to his son, you are my son whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. But if you know the scriptures, it's an open door to a powerful testimony to who Jesus is and what he's going to be doing. And how does God do it? He quotes his own book. God thinks his own book is important enough to quote He doesn't have to say something new. So we have God to Jesus answering the questions, who are you and what are you doing here? Um, I'm going to go ahead and move to the next section because I think it transfers well. And then that'll leave, that'll leave a lot more time at the end to, yeah, throw it in. We talked about the political parties that existed. When... The Psalm 2 comes out. Jesus is now the hero of all three political parties. The Zealots love him because he's the king. The Sadducees love him because he's the king and the temple is going to be there. And the Pharisees love him at this point because he is the fulfillment. They, of all people, know this step of all three the wisdom, the law, and the prophets. The fact that he's mentioned in all three. At that point, 
if they're thinking that he really is the Messiah, all three are, are firmly behind him if he is the Messiah because he's going to be the king. And their whole social, religious, cultural thing is we're about to be independent, we're about to be the center of the earth. Mm-hmm. With Jesus, the Messiah, as the king, and more importantly, me, whoever me is, as his number one, as we see from the apostles a little later. Mm-hmm. You know, the Sadducees think, you know, the temple's going to be the temple, so I'm going to be rich and powerful. The Pharisees say, it's the law, I'm going to be rich and powerful. The Zealots are saying, we're going to be independent, we're going to be rich and powerful. Mm-hmm. And then he spends the rest of the time flipping all that over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is king, son, and servant. Um, All right, so what I'd like to do here is kind of um, make a bridge from the baptism to the wilderness uh, scenes um, next. So Genesis 1 through 3, um, we know uh, this story fairly well. The beginning is not this blissful place. Genesis 1, the original state of things is chaos. Total darkness, fragments in all different directions. I picture it like if you went into a room and you didn't know how big the room was, the lights are turned out, and someone throws eight different puzzles in there, and there's not even all the pieces to the puzzle, and they say, go put that puzzle together. You couldn't do it. It's chaos. It doesn't make sense. That's the original state of Genesis, utter chaos with no vision. And I think we know that's true because there are times we feel that way in our own lives, right? Nothing makes sense. I don't understand this. It's total darkness. But what's also true is that the Spirit of God is present and is in the midst of the chaos and the darkness, hovering over the waters, it says. And we know that's true as well. The Spirit is with us. This, I mean, Emmanuel, God with us, is not new. It's not a New Testament thing. It's right here in Genesis 1. God is with us from the very beginning, even when it's total chaos. And then God starts to speak. And the words of God change things and transforms things. And day by day, the words of God have an impact on what is there in front of him. It culminates in Adam and Eve, and then God breathes life into Adam and Eve. Uh, They're walking in the garden. They're hungry. The serpent comes along and tempts them uh, to eat food they shouldn't eat. And Satan does it by twisting God's words, not giving new words, but twisting God's commands. All right, now we switch to... Uh, Jesus' baptism, and then going into the wilderness. Jesus is baptized into the waters that we must be baptized into, and the Spirit descends upon him. Then God speaks to Jesus. And then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness And it is there that he is tempted. So we come into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. The gospel writers say after fasting for 40 days, Jesus is hungry. 
Obviously, we're not that dumb. <laughs> of course he's hungry. But it's interesting, I think the gospel writers are saying a couple of, of well, a lot of different things here. Uh, number one, he's human, and, he's get, and he gets hungry. He's like us. But also, he's hungry for God's word. He's hungry for God. But also, I think he's setting the story up to be like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are hungry. Satan comes along and offers them food they shouldn't eat. Jesus is hungry. Satan comes along and offers him food he shouldn't eat. What we see in uh, this story is that Jesus depends upon God's word and correctly interprets it. It's a challenge for us, I think, because do we know the word well enough to live by it correctly? Uh, Satan here uses God's words almost every time. He uses scripture to tempt Jesus. Jesus uses scripture for life. And it's a common rabbinic practice, actually, to respond to circumstances in life and questions by just quoting scripture. And you see Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, doing that right here. Just one quick uh, thing I'll toss in. He quotes twice from Deuteronomy 6, which we already read from Deuteronomy 6 today, the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6. and then he quotes once from Deuteronomy 8. Um, so Satan offers him, you know, if you are the son of God. Satan is like testing the questions, who are you and what are you doing here? Right? He's just been told that by God himself directly. And then Satan comes along and tests him and tempts him in those questions. His identity and what he's supposed to be doing. And, of course, the first one If you are the Son of God, make these stones become bread. Uh, Jesus quotes part of this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he humbled you, God humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Um, there's so the, the wilderness scenes are such a... Well, there's just so much there that we don't have time to get too deep into it. So um, let me offer a couple closing thoughts and then, uh, and then we'll, we can talk about it for a little bit. Um, I, so, I think, so I was at the airport the other day. This is really funny. And I was walking up with my uh, driver's license and ticket to check in. I walk up to the TSA person, said, how are you doing today? And she goes, I'm here. And I was like, that's a right answer to a different question. <laughs> like, I was texting my friend about it, who we love ridiculous stuff like this. And he said, maybe she thought you asked, where are you? <laughs> I know you're here. I'm here, too. We're, everybody around here is here. So I want to think about the questions that I think we've uh, maybe given some answers to. The Old Testament mattered to Jesus. He learned it. He lived by it, and he depended on it in real life 
situations. Is the Old Testament relevant? Yes, it was to Jesus. Do we need the Old Testament? Yes, Jesus did. Should we spend time reading and learning it? Yes, Jesus did. If it matters to Jesus, it should matter to us. Um, all right, I'll leave it there. Any, what thoughts, questions? Do you, what do you like, what do you not like about this? Um, it, to, I'll say too, I think it's kind of intimidating and daunting because like this is a lot, to know the text that well and to live by it day by day is a lot, but it's also just infinite opportunity for us to be blessed by God's words. Okay, you mentioned that Jesus was at the temple and that he was getting ready to go into an internship. Would, would he have gone into an internship at the synagogue instead of working with his dad? Well, there's a lot of uh, the discipleship system uh, is a big deal. And most, it's, it's hard to get to be a disciple of a rabbi. Um, you just have to be super, super qualified. And Jesus... Um, I think hits, hits that top tier as we discussed. And so it doesn't mean you don't necessarily work, but, the, but you follow a rabbi around to become like that rabbi. So don't have a clue who Jesus' rabbi might have been, but as far as the context goes, very few people became disciples. And to become a disciple, you had to, be, you had to know the scriptures extremely, extremely well. The father, yeah, and you would go into the father's trade, which um, the Greek word tekton would really would indicate that he wasn't a carpenter, as we discussed for a minute last week. Probably a stonemason working and shaping stone, which that fits with a lot of uh, scriptures better even than carpenter. So, do we have any idea who educated Jesus up to that point? I mean, he had to learn evidently to read. Not every child back then got to learn, especially not female children. Uh, I'm not saying he was. I'm saying I wonder if that uh, made him think about later in his life when he made men and women equal. Right. Some of what he did when he saw that young women did not have the opportunities that maybe he did. Right. Very. There. I think there are very few occasions of women very few occasion of women disciples. But um, it is interesting though, Galilee was a poor area at the time, but uh, these people knew their Bible. I mean, it was a very well-educated area. Synagogues uh, all over the place in the Galilee area, and these people knew the text well. So Jesus spent most of his ministry in the Galilee area, and therefore, was roaming in circles of people that were thinking about the scriptures often, even though they probably had other jobs. Um, but yeah, I like, don't know who, like, who was his rabbi. A lot of Jesus' theology aligns with the, the Pharisees, actually, not, not the Sadducees. And it's pretty close to the Essenes, too. There's a lot of crossover with, especially John the Baptist and the Essenes. Because remember, the Essenes came out of the Pharisees. They came from the same parents' philosophy, 
Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, the Essenes, it, it's a matter of emphasis between the Pharisees and the Essenes. And then, yeah, Galilee was very, it was very much an Essene-Pharisee area. The Sadducees were, were pretty much surrounding Jerusalem and the temple. And so a lot, a lot of the early, the, the advantage that a lot of the Jews had is the reason that when you look around history, why the Jews uh, rose to be administrators of a lot of the, they get conquered. You know, think, think of, uh, they, they get conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Within 30 years, one of the Jews is the number two man in the kingdom. Daniel, because they were extremely well educated. Every boy was educated up to age 13. He had to memorize scripture. He had to learn the Torah. They learned how to read and write in Hebrew, uh, and then Aramaic probably a little later. Uh, considering at this point in time, the world, most of the guys I've read said that the literacy rate in the world at this time was between 1% and 2%. The world was literate. The Jews were overwhelmingly literate. Uh, and it was a lot of spoken word. And spoken word, mm-hmm. yeah. And as memorized, because memorized, you know, right. the scriptures, you know, as the guys who study Hebrew will tell you, there are no vowels, there are no uh, periods, there are no commas in, in the Hebrew written. You had to memorize it to know what was there. And so when you read it, you were really reading what you had memorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a, they are very, very literate. Steve. Yep. Uh, one of the Hasmonean rabbis who was very influential uh, decreed that every young man must go to Israel and learn and memorize and read the scriptures. In fact, some of the girls, uh, a good portion of the, of the young girls but it was highly suggested that they do that. Because mm-hmm. there's not an uneducated group. The, the apostles, we think of them, they were lower educated. They were up to date. Right. Even though they probably didn't make it, it appears, into the following a rabbi full-time because they had gone back to be fishermen, etc. Mm-hmm. But they knew their stuff. It's, uh, so let me throw in one more, again, reference here. When Jesus says to the fishermen, disciples, come now and I will make you fishers of men. And of course, he's probably like talking to them against the Sea of Galilee. So again, pictures, thinking pictures, he's talking about what's in front of them. But that's also not original. Jeremiah 16, talking about the day of the Lord, says that I will send for many fishermen and they will catch them. And a couple verses down, it says, I, the Lord, will teach them. I will teach them my power and my might. So these disciples probably knew like, oh, he's quoting from Jeremiah and he's saying something big about himself and that he wants us to join. Like that's a big statement. And again, it's great on its own. So it's not like if you don't know the scripture reference, you're wrong. You're just, there's a lot of, you're missing a lot, I would suggest, because there's a lot of good stuff there. And again, the scriptures they have are the Hebrew Bible. And so um, they're pointing you back to the text. I will make you fishers of men, pointing you to Jeremiah 16. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, 
It's just a wor- I've gotten to the point personally where if I don't know the Old Testament reference uh, in, in verses, then I think like I'm probably missing a lot of good stuff that's here. 10.45, on time again. Yes. We said that Jesus probably had a high ACT. How would God have used a person with a, an IQ of 65 or an autistic person? Mm. Is there any room in the kingdom? Yeah, I, great question. I think, um, I think of two, two things. Loving God with all your heart and soul and might that's it. It's not, also, you need to be really smart. <laughs> you know, you need to know more stuff. I think that. I think, too, when he takes the demons, the legion of demons out of the man, and he's in the Decapolis, and that's on, you know, the pagan side across the Jordan, um, he tells his story. And there's a reference that Jesus comes back to the area, and there are a lot of people who have caught on to this message from the demon, formerly demon-possessed guy. And he told a story about what Jesus did for him in his life. So, um, is that, so I guess that's how I would talk about that. Yep. Jerry, I have a cousin who had a birth Not just with words. Not just with words. Not just with words, but uh, hugs and smiles and yeah. nothing makes him sad. Mm-hmm. He will bring you up. That's awesome. Yeah. But in the Jews addressed thought that that was a punishment from God to the parents because of the sin, and Jesus addressed that directly with the physical disability not mental. Awesome. Thanks for being here, guys. Loved it. Have a great week.